Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to a new year of philosophy versus improv. We're starting off 2022 or rather wrapping up 2021 with one of your favorite partially examined life guests, Philosophy Bro, a.k.a. Tommy Morangis. I think we're really hitting our stride now, and I hope that you can show a little love to PVI, either by leaving a nice rating and review on the Philosophy vs. Improv Apple Podcast page, or share this episode on your social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And finally, put your money where your mouth is. Go to philosophyimprov.com slash support, and you'll get ad-free versions of these episodes with our post-game talk, which Tommy sticks around for this time. Thanks so much for listening. We're excited for the new year. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, a philosophy high mucky muck, interested in learning improv. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv pedagogue, curious about philosophy. And our guest. I'm Tommy Moranges, and I do a little bit of everything, and I'm excited to be doing philosophy and improv here today. Yes, you fit in, in neither category, mm-hmm. but I think we're going to have a lot of guests in the future that fit in neither category. We're opening that door? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Tommy was a familiar figure for me. So he he had blogged as Philosophy Bro for a number of years, and as part of that was on the Partially Examined Life as a guest. And then that's right. I was very surprised to find that you were actually connected. I had gotten into this improv comedy thing, was listening to Hello from the Magic Tavern, and one time, one of the fake commercials that they put into an early episode, there was Tommy's voice right in there, that you had some connection with the improv world as I had independently stumbled to it. Mark, we keep independently running into each other in different places, because I work in games now, and you were also the one Gen Con you've ever been to. Yes. It was my first Gen Con ever. So something in the universe wants us to work together more. Yeah, I, Bill, I have tenuous connections to philosophy and improv. And what are those two things about, if not tenuous connections? (laughs) Indeed, indeed. But it's our choice to accentuate those tenuous connections. Breathe life into them. Exactly. Yes, we should explain the format. Bill, do you want to fill folks in on what we're doing here today? Well, we each have a little bit of a lesson. And we've selected that lesson. And this is kind of how this thing works in principle, although in reality, things usually go not this way, but that's fine. But anyway, we're going to attempt to explain our point to the other person and see if they can pick up on it and see how it's affected by them. We can talk over each other. It's not like turns where it's all going to be kind of in vivo, in situ, and we'll just have some fun and have some discussions. And we usually end up talking shop in both worlds. And, and that's that. Yes. And how a guest fits into this is always up for grabs, is always a developing thing. I did not tell Tommy to have a third thing prepared, but I did pick something for mine that I knew that you were interested in. And maybe this is kind of a way to to start us off. As last time we talked about you doing a Partial Exam Life episode was quite a few years ago, actually. And you had said Mm -hmm. you were reading a lot of Aristotle's categories at the time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, which is a little book about sort of the basic kinds of stuff that exists in the universe. And this is a topic that I tried to get us talking about with Bill a few episodes ago. Uh, I think I called the episode Broken Atomic Dogs, if you want to look up to it. But it ended up, as as often happens, 
If I'm talking about basic ways to break up the universe, there are different ways you could do that. And you started talking about ways that we could break up, you know, just like if we're describing the objects in the room in front of us or something like that, that there are all sorts of breaking down things phenomenally, according to like what we actually perceive. That is one of the ways that people have done this breaking down. That's not the Aristotle way. That's not the ontological way where you're concerned with like, ultimately, what is the primary being of things or whatever. So I wanted to just, as a starting point, at least gesture in that direction, that I'm going to sort of give a second try on hammering on this most dry of topics, maybe from Bill's perspective, uh, and see what we can do with that. And Tommy, you'll be required at the end as a guest judge. We have, we've uh, put a drop cloth over the normal judge, the judge bot 5,000. You might hear some struggling, some beeping in the background during this, but he will be off the table. You have in your hands who will be the winner of the contest today. Which of the two lessons produces the most profound effect in the other person in, in the world at large? Oh, man. I love picking. I love picking <laughs> when there are no stakes. Perfect. Uh, JudgeBot is slowly gaining some level of sentience. Perhaps at some point it may be unfair to throw a cloth over them. But at this point, I feel comfortable treating it as though it is not a living creature. Yes, we can still say it. That is fine. We've determined that. Any pronoun, any pronoun you want. Is that something you guys are worried about? Is Judge Bot 5000 gaining sentience? The original round of judges were regular people who were uh, imprisoned, and uh, that didn't turn out so well. That didn't last. That was not a sustainable solution. So really, we're just looking for a way to keep this podcast going. If we were to make a category, things that are sentient, or what is required for sentience, you know, did I just jump the gun? Did I just take steal your no, thunder? No, go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. I, I feel like I've talked a lot already. So, Bill, can you maybe set us up, get us on a scene? Let's do this. This is a, a bit of a, a divergence from categories, but then again, perhaps it isn't. That's something else I think we've learned, Tommy, is that things usually end up lining up. There are connections that occur, and all we need to do is accentuate, acknowledge, recognize, and accentuate mm-hmm. those connections. And suddenly something cool has happened. So here's what we're going to do. I threatened this several weeks ago, and I think I explained it one time, but I kind of want to do it. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to go around between the three of us, and we're just going to name objects that all happen to be in the same room. And it's not any of the three rooms that we're in right now. It's going to be an imaginary space. However, we have to realize that these objects, uh, uh, when we name an object, we can also go back and color someone else's object. There is a painting, a, a Mona Lisa print on the wall. Someone could go back and say, it's like a cheap plastic frame. And we can add details to other people's objects if we wish, or add a new object. Now, it is just objects. We don't know intent. We don't know who owns it. All those things. We are simply labeling objects. Is that cool? Yeah, that sounds great. That is very cool. I want Tommy to start. <laughs> sure. Let's do it. A cactus in a terracotta planter. A whole little uh, other little area behind it of other little terracotta pots with little succulents and, and desert plants. An enormous egg. What is in it? We do not know. A black and white picture of a family in another country. There's a window and through the window we can see a pine forest and snow-capped mountains in the background. The blackness of the black and white picture is also an object in this room. An easel facing the window with a canvas on it. There is a wooden table with a stack of unopened mail. The possibilities of what could be in that mail also count as an object in the room. A small child in one corner. Oh, boy. Through an opening into an area that appears to be a kitchen, it is just littered with dirty dishes and granola bar wrappers and 
empty juice boxes. Another object in the room is the rapidity with which the egg is breaking, revealing its horrible essence to the small child who is looking toward the window as if to escape. There is an endpoint to this, right? <laughs> Somewhere. Well, I don't know. You went for some big objects. You're really swinging the bat. You're really swinging for the fences here, Mark. And I think something we, we can try to do is just try to like create meaning with just a bunch of objects. The fact that they are together is going to what generates that meaning. That may have been the lesson, but uh, <laughs> or a piece of it. I hope I didn't ruin your exercise by being too heavy-handed. I think Tommy <laughs> could probably say why I was being heavy-handed in that way based on his knowledge of the categories. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, could, I could take a stab at it, sure. If we were all to write down the circumstance that brought this room about, what would we say that it is? Well, there's a parent who's also a researcher of some sort, maybe, into you know Dark Arcana, <laughs> who paints as a hobby. And some, probably somewhere in Arizona, so maybe near... Area 51 or something like that, based on the geography of the scene. Mm -hmm. Again, out the window are trees, yet inside are cactuses and a photo from another country. So there's something going on with that. And this child clearly has been left alone. Mm -hmm. Perhaps a, you know, a young Indiana Jones type. <laughs> Not into himself, but uh, like father, like son. Mark, any other assumptions we can make about this scenario? I guess I thought this was so chaotic that the child being in a corner, maybe I'm not remembering the details right of the child, but. I was picturing some sort of captive rather than a resident. Okay. If, if we want to go to that dark place, anything else? Anything else we can infer? The researcher is very consumed with their research and their hobbies and doesn't have time to clean up juice boxes or mail. Sure. Or they've been gone somewhere. Perhaps wherever they stole that egg from was some dinosaur or evil that has transmogrified into the mm -hmm, egg. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the egg is the parent. And these aren't humans. Eh, we assume they're humans, but that's just our own humocentrism. You know, humocentrism, that's a word. But look at that. Just a bunch of just random objects, but their proximity to one another, meaning there's meaning there. Should we try another one real fast or do we want to be philosophical? Yeah, I want to push Tommy a little bit to answer. Do you think I was breaking oh, Bill's yeah. thing by naming all these things that are not things? Yeah, so this is the categories, right? This is the idea. The question of like, when we say thing, what is it exactly that we're referring to? What is the basic unit of reality? If there can be said to be one. And there are lots of ways we talk about reality. And we say the sun rises, even though the sun doesn't move. Our planet rotates. And so ordinary language is maybe not a good guide to what the fundamental unit of reality is. But if Aristotle is right, then there are these different sort of irreducible relationships like when a thing is or where. And those can be said to be parts of the fundamental reality of this room. So Mark was really pushing on these relationships. The rapidity of the cracking of the egg is, we could say, separate from the crack itself. Sure. This idea that you said that nothing is necessarily certain on its own, except for, as Aristotle said, something irreducible. What another way to think about that irreducibly is that you can compare two objects and that comparison is always irreducible, is always true. One object is above another object. One object is 
closer to the center of the earth than, <laughs> than another object. Yes, that is one of the categories is relationality, which is not even so much pointing at like, you know, this thing is to the left of this thing. What is the to the left of? That's the relation that's in there. That's one way of thinking about it. But I think it's more exactly what you were saying. The fact that there is a difference in magnitude between two things like that, that sort of difference in the abstract is a thing. And I think as we did that, Mark, your objects were certainly, in my mind, made them apart from the other objects. Was that difference in magnitude? Yeah, let's do another thing. And I'll try not to be a dick about it this time. since (laughs) My point has already been made. I enjoyed what you did. And I would like to do a standard improv scene at some point today. But I wanted to start with this kind of exercise. And this is something that occurs in improv classes from time to time. And we can talk about why at the end of the show. Mark, get us going. We'll blaze through this rapid fire. A small model of the Millennium Falcon. A flag that is framed and mounted on a wall. A high school diploma. Some uh, whiskers that have been uh, brushed off of a, a counter that are just scattered on the ground. A collection of sand timers. A giant pile of dirty laundry. A dead rat. The laundry is sorted into whites and colors, but they are both dirty piles. A really nice computer with the liquid cooling and the lighting system. Some uh, stains on one of the socks that look like it might have been something that poisoned the rat. A phone on the wall that is dangling from its cord off the cradle. A garbage can semi-overflowing with takeout bags and styrofoam containers. 300 corpses. (laughs) You'd think that one would lead with that, but you know. And all those corpses are little uh, Warhammer 40K miniatures. Sure. All right. (laughs) That's why we didn't notice them right away. Mm Mm-hmm. A standing desk that is pristine. I think that's that's about the last thing one could... That's impossible. That's Im- <laughs> My mind is blown. All those other things were just petty, but the fact that there was a, a standing desk that was not messy... That hasn't been touched, that has not been utilized, uh, that tells us a lot about the occupant of this space. What kind of person is this, do we think? A gamer. One of us. One of the three of us, quite possibly, in another, in another parallel world. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to look a little closer at that desk. Is it actually pristine or is it merely empty, as if a wargaming player has gotten frustrated? I don't know how freaking that war game works, but it has knocked all the pieces on the ground, leaving it pristine. You know, there's a method to this room's madness. It's not total chaos like a tornado or a person who can't take care of themselves lives here. It's someone who has made sort of minimum viable choices to sort the laundry, hang a model, paint these miniatures, and they're not concerned with anything beyond what do I need to achieve basic function. Now, if we go back to that, the first object was a model of the Millennium Falcon. We could have gone anywhere. That model could have existed. The next object could have been another model from another Star Wars or a different sci-fi franchise or any non-sci-fi. This could have been just all models. It could have been in a glass case. It could have been on the top shelf of a closet. I think the second item... A flag. A flag. Yeah. Again, it's like those things could all, as each of these objects come about, it's converging on one reality. Yes. I was thinking about, you know, I've thought about set dressing in TV shows sure. and things, films. And somebody has to say, you know, what would a kid have in their room? And I always feel like in real rooms, it's way more random and less of a unified theme as if this child has all their posters that, you know, project a uniform sort of, and it's got, they've got their trophies to show what they've accomplished. And I don't know, a lot of just random weird stuff happens, especially if you're on the messy side and maybe don't like exert 
super control <laughs> over your environment. You know, this must uh, accord with my feng shui. Then things just accumulate and it becomes, you know, something that is more complicated and more interesting, I think, than most set dressers would feel is appropriate. Because if they put something like, I don't know, what is the most random thing that is in Bill that is in your room that you're in right now? There's a lot of random stuff because it's a bit of a junk room, a guest bedroom. I'm going to say radon detector and an unopened package might be the most random uh, thing that my eye eye catches. What about you, Tommy? Strictly speaking, this cup full of dice is probably the most random thing in this room. But other than that, I would say I have a small plant on my desk and it's the only other living thing in here. And I'm not very good at taking care of it. I'm looking around here and, you know, a lot of this is a basement. There's a lot of junk in here. There's a lot of book related stuff, music related stuff. There's a pillow with no pillowcase. It looks like it might have come from a couch just in the floor, nestled among things, and a paint can that I have used to put a speaker on top of. Like both of those things were, I can say actually, I think the pillow used to be in the kick drum. So there was a reason for it. But just taken in isolation and the way things have, have panned out and the fact that, that pillow has been there for at least six months, you know, it always, if you just did that when you were designing for a TV show and just decided to put, you know, a random paint can or a pillow, That would just raise more questions that the people telling the story don't want to have to answer. I got two school-age kids, and I bet if I could read their minds, I would know that there were some things in their room that they have that were gifts from either another relative or somebody that they don't have the courage to say they don't want in their room anymore. Or they don't like, but that's just how the room is, or they feel some kind of sense of obligation to keep them there. Growing up, I had these collector's edition Coke bottles from a, some Super Bowl or other, and they were in these cardboard collectors. But I, they were just flat bottles of Coke that were 30 years old, just sitting on a shelf yeah. in my closet. That's 100% a problem that kids have to deal with. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So when we're talking about the things that are required to sort of set a scene, and I think, Bill, you made a great point here that you could throw out any number of elements, even coming from different minds as they just were in those exercises, and we could try to put together a coherent story, and that's what the improviser is always doing. When we're describing a real situation, you know, at least if you're sort of taking Aristotle's analysis, then you've got to, as Tommy was saying, like, you know, you can't just say, I have a pillow here. You have to say, well, what are the, the qualities that in, in here in that pillow? You know, whatever that means, adherence. And you have to say the pillow is in a certain location. It has a certain position. It's kind of leaning, you know, it's not flat on its bottom. It's leaning against some other stuff that I can't even see here and various other things to tell the whole story. There's really only, I think, according to Aristotle, one fundamental thing there that is the pillow, but there are all these other types of being that are dependent on that, you know, that substance there. Aristotle does a lot with like predication, right? What is it that we can predicate of things or that can be the subject of a sentence Very, very early on, he has this intuition that there's something about language. There's a connection between language and thought that let's break things down into the most basic elements that we can predicate of something else. At what point does that just, is that just annoying? Uh, I misunderstand the question immediately. (laughs) I think for non, I would say non-philosophers, because everyone is a philosopher to some regard, but for kind of amateur armchair philosophers or college stoner philosophers, I worry we're on a collision course for, well, does anything mean anything? So as a conversation ender or as a way of avoiding actually talking about anything, if we get too granular about what means what, does that make sense? How do people who take their philosophical bent seriously either rebut that point of view 
or avoid <laughs> having that point of view? I think that a somewhat scary thing about getting into Aristotle's categories is they're so specific and they feel like this whole existing system you're sort of coming to. And immediately you can notice either problems with it or you want to think about it in a slightly different way than Aristotle does. You know, as we were doing the scene, it sort of reminded me of this thing that both philosophy and improv have in common, which is actually the sort of emptier a scene, the more possibility there is. But to us as humans, as the scene gets fuller, more possibilities occur to us, right? Like we notice more things. Once there are five objects, actually the universe of things that make sense is smaller, but I can think of more of them, right? So like the deeper you go, the more I can think of. And both philosophy, at least, which is what I have more experience with, is very much a practice of like widening that early view so that you can see more possibility in things, but also of accepting the constraints as they come, even if temporarily, right? So I would say the way to rebut a sort of, well, does anything mean anything is to say, I don't know, do you think things mean things? I think we all agree things mean things. And here's what Aristotle was doing. And maybe we can talk later about like whether that was right or wrong. But once we understand this in the same way, it's like, look, this is the scene we're doing right now. And later we can go back and say, like, was this scene right or wrong? Or were there mistakes or better choices we could have made? But sticking with the fundamental constraints that Aristotle is giving us, the old analogy of them humanities joining a conversation that's been going for a long time and people are entering and leaving the room. Uh, same, but an improv scene, I guess. So, Tommy, thank you for our episode title, Things Mean Things. That is, uh, <laughs> that is golden. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you said, once you start thinking about sort of what are the fundamental ways of breaking things down, you might disagree with him that as soon as I opened that can of worms in the first exercise we did, Bill, I started not just talking about the black that is in the black and white painting, which is that's one of those properties. And in fact, he makes the distinction between the particular black that is in that particular painting and the general black that the particular black is an instance of. That's a weird wrinkle. But then I also threw in stuff like the fear that was in the room, the possibilities of what was in the mail. And those are things that Aristotle talks about, but not in the categories. Those are not actually not, he would have to say that somehow those are reducible, that the fear is like, well, it's a quality that a person has. It's a kind of emotion, a feeling, you know, we have to somehow break all this stuff down into those more basic things. And it might imply a set of circumstances because of which this person's experiencing fear and those circumstances. And are they a typical human for experiencing fear based on those circumstances? Or are they atypical? Are they, uh, uh, <laughs> they're anxietal. And this set of circumstances is curious that they would feel fear over this set of circumstances. It sounds like you're setting up a uh, scene for us to do because we can't let Tommy get out of here without having to act like a chicken or whatever, whatever. <laughs> Let's stop for a little sponsor break. St. John's College is the nation's great books college where students explore 3,000 years of human thought. Together, students discuss, analyze, and grapple with the most difficult questions about our lives and the world. St. John's College offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options at their campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. The Graduate Institute is a home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. From Aristotle to Aquinas, Wordsworth to Wolfe, Herodotus to Hegel, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Liberal Arts, Explore some of history's most influential writers and thinkers. The interdisciplinary degree includes five segments, literature, mathematics and natural sciences, philosophy and theology, politics and society, and history. On the Santa Fe campus, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the great books of India, China, and Japan in an Asian studies program that delves both deep and wide into the richness of these traditions. 
Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about our undergraduate and graduate programs, including online options at sjc.edu slash improv. Something that looks like an improv scene, something that we presume to be an improv scene. But what is an improv scene, really, than the things all around it? I'm glad you asked, Bill. Welcome to my TED Talk. Okay, here we got 10 categories. That's it. That's the end of that joke. I think Friday night, when you're up there at that open mic, I think that's going to kill. I think that's, I think that's really fun. Everyone knows TED Talks, man. That's, re- that's funny stuff. It's good stuff. Everyone loves a TED Talk. Oh, man. I'd be pissing my pants nervous <laughs> if I were you going up there. <laughs> With that, what do you got? Oh, I've got a tight five that's only one TED Talk. It's going to go great. Well, I mean, there's comedians who can turn whole jokes into, into long, into Barry. You, that was a good joke, right? Can we be supportive? Yeah, you keep going on your little uh, TED Talk skit up there, Barry. You're killing. Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing the joke. I'm just, I'm nervous because here's the thing. My father's going to be here and I don't know. I really want to impress him. That's important to me. Sure. Hey, you know, journey of a thousand miles. That's it one step. You were the funniest guy growing up. You're the funniest guy in our circle of friends. And there's no reason why a bunch of people at the Chuckle Warehouse won't think you're hilarious too, okay? Thanks, guys. It means a lot to me. Do you have something in there, you know, that kind of relates directly to him? I always think that's a, if you know you have somebody in the audience you want to impress, maybe you throw in a joke that's just like really aimed at him, like maybe even about him, that you could put him in your your TED Talk or something. I don't know. Oh, boy. His name is Ned. Is there anything there? Ned talk? Welcome to my... That's that's pandering, guys. I That's a little heavy, Barry. It's a little heavy. I mean, the relationship you've had with your father has been strained, and maybe it'd be best to just not include him. You know, don't give him the satisfaction of knowing that he, he still has some sway in your life, you know? Unless you want to give him that satisfaction. I don't know. I'm presuming the relationship, but you know. No, I... You know, Jim, I always appreciate your input. That's... Uh, I really value what you have to say. I think I'm going to do the joke about the nuns. It feels more familiar to me. And the TED Talk, I can I can sort of narrow down. I don't need to talk about. Catholics are a safe target. Let's just be perfectly frank. Catholics are a safe target unless you're in Boston or Poland or Mexico City. You, go for it, man. Go for it. Go for it. It's great. It seems like a lot of TED Talks include the anecdotes like that within them, that you could be like, okay, yeah, I'm here to talk about the categories and... uh Whoa, take a look at those categories on her, you know, that, and then you tell the nun story, that kind of, you like that? Do you want to do the jokes? I should let you do the comedy. You're the funny one. You, you asked for our input. I mean, I just, I, give us a little more of it. Let us, uh, let us see, see what you had in mind. Okay. Well, uh, two nuns walk into a bar. Love it already. Great. And they go up to the bar and they, they order drinks and the bartender says, are you allowed to drink? You're nuns. And they look at each other and they say, oh, man, hang on. Hang on. I'm blanking. Oh, no. Is, is there something about like the fact that <laughs> there's a, the nun is like N-O-N-E and that there's nothingness. And that, so he's really addressing the nothingness, something like that. I thought that was part of the initial plan with the nun joke. Look, it's fine. Look, you've got hours of material. You're going to be fine. You're really nervous about this. Is it because of your dad? Yeah, that's got to be it. I mean, I, you know, it's hours of material. Like, I suppose after a long day of moving boxes around in the back of the chuckle warehouse, going to the front of the chuckle warehouse and having to like deliver them. It's just, it's a different role and it's the potential for a big promotion, but I'm nervous, you know? Is it ironic or coincidental that there is an actual warehouse that serves as a front to a comedy club and they're both are called chuckle warehouse? Have you decided, is that ironic or coincidental? 
my understanding is that it was intentional. I don't even know if it was meant to be ironic. The chuckle came later. It was just a warehouse and the owner was like, you know, how to, I can make some extra money is also have open mics here. Yeah, yeah. He's really sharp. He's a really sharp guy. Now, there's a guy there that I wish I, that would have been a good dad for me to have. Well, I mean, we, we don't get to pick our fathers. I mean, it's a strange setup that they have here that it seems like all the comedians that perform at the Chuckle Warehouse have to start out in the loading bays and stuff, like putting in your dues, I think they, they call it. It seems like a really odd setup. When are you guys going to get on stage? I mean, you've been so supportive and you have such good, you have, you guys always help me out so much. You should, you can do what I do. I'm just the dumb one who will get up there and be embarrassed, but you guys are the ones. I, I got a bad back. I can't, I can't go through the, the initial steps that you've gone through. I mean, I, I, I'm the person who would never do, I would do extra credit rather than an oral presentation in school. All right. I, I can't get in front. That's the number one fear. You know, people are more afraid of getting up, getting in front of people than they are dying. I just think it's awesome. All right. And in fact, I think tonight I'm buying dinner tonight and to get you everybody ready. I don't know if there's anything you want to eat that I don't know what comedians meal wise, if you want to fast or you want to gorge or carbo load. I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, that's tough because you don't want to be hangry up there, but you also don't want to be sleepy. But also, it's like if there was a middle amount that I could eat, but there isn't. And that's really, that's a real challenge. I'll tell you what, we'll get like some Indian or uh, Middle Eastern just kind of plates and you just pick off what you want rather than, than meals. Is that cool? Barry, what do you want? What, what are you thinking? Yeah, that sounds great. Small plates. I love that. Small plates. Boom. Sharing size. Barry, what yeah, are you, you, you just got to show your dad that you are uh, well fed, successful, that you've achieved some, some sort of good life out of, uh, out of pursuing this. Are we worried that his father will think he's having a, a non-nutritious life that will guilt him about, I left my walk down on my young wife and child, and now look at him, he's unhealthy? Is that an honest concern? You know I come from landed aristocracy. That's the most important thing to wealthy families is All right. the appearance of physical health. I think the only reason that he's coming tonight after not seeing you for so long, just based on what we've been talking about, is that he feels like even though he's had what he thinks is a happy and good life, that he can't be called happy, he can't die happy until, uh, you know, he can say that his progeny, you know, at least is going on. There's always those problems with your reputation right up until the moment and even after you're dead. So I think really whatever impression you think will uh, either, if you want to make him happy or just make him really worried about this, you should do it. Let's stop wasting your time on this person. They are of no consequence and all this pressure you feel is not real. It is a product of your brain and uh, what is real are the 50 to 75 people with a two drink minimum. That's real. <laughs> okay. What's real is you're in the feature slot. Yeah, you're right, Jim. I've earned this. I've worked hard. If he's there, he's there. If, if he ain't, he ain't. Yeah. Screw that guy. It always helps to picture your audience as if their underwear is a, a separate entity. And, uh, you know, so your audience is twice as big and they're uh, naked. Okay, see, now I'm back. I was there. Jim had me really excited, but now I'm back to, so you're saying I should picture whoever's in the audience naked? Don't listen to that. That's ridiculous. He's kind of marrying two tropes about picturing people in their underwear or picturing them naked. Why would you ever take our advice about how to conduct yourself on stage? I mean, that's <laughs> like literally, this guy's, this guy's back is horrible. He can't get on stage, his back is so bad. Because you guys are going to come watch, right? Totally. I'm paying. I'm going to pay. Are you saying that you want me to picture you naked? Is that what this is about? Well, Barry, uh, 
say, I want you to picture me naked. That's because I'm already picturing you naked. And I, I think we just dudes, need to, dudes, to, dudes, to gross, just make gross, this gross, gross, make this happen and be done with it. Gross. Uh, no, this is, this is, uh, just worrying too much about this. Let's just, just go get this out of our systems. Yeah. Wow. I appreciate that, I guess, but let's just focus on my dad, shall we? <laughs> no, we're not going to focus on That's the whole point. We're not focusing on your father. We're focusing on your act, which is killer. We're focusing on who's going to be in the audience. Could be some fellas. Could be some ladies, you know. And we're going to focus on you killing it, all right? And I'm going to focus on me ordering share portions from restaurants that typically offer share portions. I'm thinking Mediterranean and or Indian. So who am I calling? Mediterranean, I guess. I We'll get some hummus. We'll get some falafel. We'll get some of that. A big plate of shawarma. How are we feeling? Is that good? Yeah, that's great because it's mostly Orthodox in the Mediterranean, right? Like, if I'm going to be making fun of Catholics, I, I would feel bad eating eating their food. Catholic food? I'm not sure what Catholic food would be, but we'll do that. We'll do that. I think it's I think it's people in one sense. I think it's the absence of fish on Fridays. The absence. Mm. Hey, steer clear from those jokes. I'm going to say that right now. Keep your regular material. So I shouldn't make fun of Catholics, man. That Catholics have a particular food. I'm saying that's, or that it's people. It's strictly like that. Cuisine jokes are tough. That's tough to land. What if I got a bunch of chefs in the audience? I forgot to check the convention roster to see what's the big crowd in town. I think it's plumbing and plumbing accessories. Plumbers are all at the Dave Matthews Band concert tonight. That's right. They're not going to be here. Oh, you're not going to have to worry Sorry. about that. Hey, we'll end right, right. there. Hey. And plumbers love Dave Matthews, <laughs> as we all know. Well. Not bad, everybody. I was wondering how long that was going to go on, and I was determined I was not going to be the one to end it. <laughs> no, no worries. I thought it was enjoyable. And I think what I have to say about that scene, based on what my lesson for today was, Mark, what would you say? I need to be careful what I say because I don't want the cat out of the bag. But Man, I'm trying to connect this to the earlier exercise, and it just seemed like what has already been said about the improv, the world that we're created being set out by a number of perhaps semi-random objects, you know, as if they were topics yelled from the crowd. But it can't be something that general that you had in mind, is it? <laughs> Do you want to guess, Tommy, what his lesson is? I don't think it's the, the objects or the things that the crowd yelled out. Like each of us is sort of implicitly creating an object when we say something new. And that is what sort of starts to shape the scene, right? So we started with a TED Talk and an open mic and a dad. And then the question is like, what else is in the room here? Not just like, okay, these are the three things in the room, but like, how can we move forward, right? Each new thing is not only a contribution to the room that's come, but the room after. Yeah. And room in the broadest sense of the term, you know, back to it, the tension in the room, the circumstances that predicated what is happening now. And those all make the scene and they're important to listen to. And this truth that emerges creates a line that you can draw through all those data points. And as we go forward, you probably feel yourself wanting to make sure we keep things on the line. Or if they're off the line, they're off the line in, in an askew fashion rather than a perpendicular fashion, if that makes sense. Yes. And you know what was maybe confusing about the uh, just objects in a room thing is that anybody can take it in a different direction or even a random sort of external direction at any time, that there was nothing about my saying there was a giant egg or 300 corpses or whatever that was <laughs> suggested. In fact, you saved me with a 300 corpses thing, which was my attempt to derail seriously. What was <laughs> that? This room was totally different than you thought. It's actually 40 miles long and has a battlefield on it or something. And you said, oh, no, no, those are Warhammer. You know, and took it right back. 
because you were correctly saying that whatever the elements that are out there, we should be building on those. So that scene was a little like I was wondering, like we've thrown out this thing with the father that really should culminate in something like the father walks in or but it, it just kind of. You know, something we fought over a little and then dropped it, more or less. One of the big, I wouldn't say unanswered, but I would say unspoken debates in the improv world is, when I make those dead bodies Warhammer miniatures, am I helping the scene or hurting the scene? And you're going to find people from both camps, and you're going to find someone who says, why would you destroy that beautiful gift of dead bodies everywhere? And you're going to find people who are like, boy, that, that shirt was stuck out like a sore thumb until you nailed that down. And you're going to find both people. And that, that's kind of maybe not the topic for today, but that's where something called taste and style emerge when there is a artistic fork in the road, which route you choose to take. They both are correct. They both are incorrect. But the one you choose to take is style and sense of humor. Yeah, there's not really a sense mark in which you, that's like a save for the scene so much as like, all right, here are two directions you could go. It's actually a battlefield and these are miniatures and they both just cohere in a different way. <laughs> I would like to have 30,000 dead bodies in the scene, though, and to try to explain that because I'm sure there is. No, well, again, try to explain. That's my own assumptions that there, there needs to be an explanation. And now we're getting into does anything mean anything world? And it happens in improv all the time with people that they're not my favorite improvisers in the world. But you can quickly get into, there are no wrong answers, only wrong perceptions. That's just kind of annoying <laughs> in my mind. It's like, I get it. Sure. Believe in everything. You believe in nothing. In the initial exercise, there were no stakes other than just the exercise itself. So throwing in uh, a, I a hope wrench. it would be compelling that it's, it's interesting that something we see something emerging. And I hope that that emergence, you know, in a movie, a director might show a bunch of images, still images or things or pan around a room. And a meaning might suddenly emerge. And hopefully that emergence of meaning is compelling drama. No, you're right. It's just that in the actual scene that we then did, while we were talking about what are you going to put in your act and is it a TED Talk and who's going to be in the audience, if I then uh, said, oh, and let's uh, make sure to include those 300 dead bodies that are taking up the, the back of the room that we just murdered because we're all assassins because you used the word Barry and that made me think of the show Barry, you would be correct and probably would have been like, you're hallucinating, you know, it's something not that like this monkey wrench that I've just thrown in is something that was there all along and we're going to organically include it. It would probably be, you just said something crazy. And so the path of least resistance is to treat you now as a crazy person, which I was trying not to do as much in this particular scene. Boy, this is really illustrating for me. I mean, the, the overlaps between the two fields, but also the sort of overthinker that both improv and philosophy <laughs> draw in. And the, the sort of epicycles it's easy to get stuck in, in either sort of discipline, when so much of philosophy, and it seems like improv also, is about learning to be at the right level of macro or micro at a given moment of this is where we're going right now, and later we can go somewhere else, but like stay moving in this direction or stay in these arguments, right? One of the worst kinds of philosophy classes is when someone wants to disagree when what we are doing right now is constructing this argument out and someone is like, ah, but what if we talked about all the flaws in the argument right away? It's like, that's not what's happening. Please don't do this. We all have so much to live for. <laughs> Can I ask you comparably, Bill, I felt like you were really set toward the end of that scene on talking about the menu and where we're going to order from, which just seemed to me like this is a dramatic dead end. This is not going to be funny. And so I was struggling with that, but that was sort of the, can you say a little about that dynamic? Were you doing that 
because of the struggles against that? Or what was your thought there? Do you guys have any guesses why I was doing that? And again, it's a style choice. I'm not going to say it's a right or a wrong choice or a universally right or universally wrong choice, but it's definitely a style choice. We were done talking about his, his show. I felt done. I felt we had resolved that. Mm-hmm. Okay. We had come to some answers and my person was ready to move. My person was satisfied with where we arrived for preparation for the show tonight and talking about his dad. So I was ready to move on. Even if y'all weren't, that's fine. But that will then provide me an opportunity to be frustrated with you for not being ready to move on. And hopefully through doing that and through talking about it, I could generate for myself or for y'all chances for emotional choices to be made. And that's dramatic. And that's what drama is going to be, is chances for people to find emotion about things. Okay, so it was not just because you actually wanted us to engage you on that level and talk about the menu for the next five minutes. And that would be the whole scene. It would be entirely mundane. You could or you couldn't. Just as in life, we're not still talking about the thing we talked about when we were three years old. Okay, I'm done talking about that. I'm ready to move on to another topic. Our lives will all go on after this conversation and they will go on when we feel they're ready to to move. An example of like picking up a friend from the airport and you talk for a while, but there's these little lulls between topics, you know? And how do you know that those lulls should exist? That's just how life works. And that's just one of the rules of life that I feel are more important than the improv rules. And that's <laughs> number one being when you're done, you're done. Move on. Audience is probably done too, or at least can sense that someone might be done. Do you have a guess? I feel like most of the philosophy was pretty upfront here and the kind of th- the secret thing that I hoped someone would say kind of came out of Tommy's mouth at one point. Do you have any sort of final thought on this categories thing as we've been discussing it as a, as a way of maybe summarizing or guessing what my point actually was? Well, I'd love to go back and remember everything that Tommy said. Yeah, don't Let's even try. <laughs> it was a very impassive. Uh, something that struck me was the idea of widening our view. And that may not have been it, but certainly categorizing things, what means what, reducibleness, and this idea that some things we presume are irreducible are actually reducible and are actually predicated on other things. And perhaps that might be a good thing. And again, so many parallels with the improv that we're doing that perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to think something is irreducible or not there be 30,000 dead bodies. And perhaps all those things are actually pointing at something else that we just can't see. So I think that's great. I think that's a great lesson to have gotten out of this. And that very much goes with the various things in a room. Can we reduce them to a theme? Can we actually make a coherent picture out of this? That that is itself is in storytelling, a form of reduction to something that's simple enough for the, the viewers to actually get, as opposed to, as I was saying, the real hodgepodge of stuff in your room that actually you could, you know, film yourself for probably an hour and a half wandering around your room, telling the stories of the individual things. Maybe eight hours, maybe 10 hours. This would be a terrible movie. But to actually make sense of your life, if you're that self-indulgent and, you know, if you're going to tell your biography, you don't want it, you know, unless your Instagram is your your autobiography, (laughs) that you don't want it to roll gradually over years. You want to actually get it to a reasonable number of themes and things that you feel like you can communicate. The thing that I actually had in mind when I came in here was that, Tommy, you mentioned you something about kind of the correspondence between language and basic stuff. And one way people have interpreted the categories is like, maybe they're kind of like the parts of speech, that there's the verbs, there's the adjectives, there's the adverbs. And that's definitely something I was getting at with the uh, the quickness of the opening of the egg, not just the opening of the egg, not just the white of its shell, but thinking that maybe there might be something in your ontology and in your list of things that actually exist that have to correspond to every single part of speech, including maybe like, and the connecting pieces, the relations that we're talking about. 
Yeah. And as, as you say that, it occurs to me that the categories are in one sense, an attempt to reduce, but there are 10 categories that a thing can have. And so having those in mind can really expand the range of things that I don't know, one is sort of aware of or, or can draw on, not just focus on like the quality or the substance of a thing, but also what it's related to and when and being conscious of that can be helpful or enriching. The fact that positionality, as I mentioned, is a separate category from when and where, like how it's leaning. It's like, that's weird. You'd think you maybe you could reduce that to some of the other ones, but all, all right, whatever. Did the ancients have any sense that language is imperfect or that their language may not conceptually be enough to encapsulate reality? Or did they just like, no, 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 Greek's perfect. And those Persians there have got the dumb language. We've got the good language that works and it's perfect. No, they definitely, like Plato in particular, thought a lot about perfection and things that sort of went beyond what we could access. This whole allegory of the caves, he thought that maybe we could get there by refining our thought. But really, a lot of this is like about thinking and thinking happens to be in language. I, I don't know if there was much about that, but like, surely. Even this idea that that's what Aristotle was doing in the categories was mapping parts of speech onto things. That's not something he says in that book. That's something that like scholars trying to figure out what the hell this is about. Well, they sort of line up with that. Maybe that's what he was doing. You know, if that's what he was doing and he didn't even feel the need to comment on it, then I think that what you said, Bill, would be right. That he just like, of course, language expresses the structure of the world. Like, why else would we have language like that? He wasn't explicitly dealing with that in that text. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, we're at the point. The buzzer has has rung. Tommy, now I know you knew more about some of this stuff than you know, other stuff when you came in here. So it's not necessarily gauging the effect on you, though that is part of it. Really, mm-hmm. you, you, I've explained the rules. I've explained what you're judging. Which lesson wins today? Mark, you and I go way back. And our friendship is very important to me. But you did not do yourself any favors today by picking famously obtuse <laughs> Aristotle's categories as the lesson. And unfortunately, I have to give the win to Bill. Congratulations, Bill. Well, we are now four for four in our guest preambling, or five for five, preambling what the outcome is going to be by talking to the loser first. And there might be a sociologist out there. So the second you were like, Mark, I was like, I won. <laughs> Woo-hoo! Yeah, I won. Forever. Yeah. yeah, there's something in there, something in there, something very human in there. I'm not sure if it's American culture or Western culture or human culture, but we got to train our judges via reality competition <laughs> TV where they're like, Josephine, you lose or Josephine, you, you win. And you, you don't know the loser today, but you are the loser <laughs> yesterday. This whole day was a sham, except it's a double sham because you won the prize for hearing who won, which is yes. That whole draw it out, draw it out, draw it out. <laughs> it's hard to like just pick a winner and be like, I'm sure everyone's feelings are going to be normal and fine after this. It is a construct. Uh, <laughs> and simply that, simply that. I'm not going to say there's not going to be any self-harm after this episode uh, based on your judgment, but you're entitled to your opinion. And uh, thank you for coming on and joining us and uh, making this an enriching time. Wonderful meeting you, Tommy. Wonderful meeting you. Yeah, it was great to meet you too, Bill. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, this was lovely. Well, Bill and Tommy, I learned a lot from you today. And I learned a lot from the both of y'all. And, and see. 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 There you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hope you enjoyed the show. Get more at philosophyimprov.com. If you want to support the show and not have to hear any more commercials and get our post-game segments where Bill and I and sometimes guests will elaborate on some things that came up in the episode, reflect on the future, and share our recommendations in the philosophy and comedy worlds, you can see options to do that at philosophyimprov.com slash support. Thanks. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.